Let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Ephesians tonight. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through the first three verses of that chapter. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. All those little small books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right there together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To read those verses one more time. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The book of Ephesians, of course, is an amazing book. It is a mine of gems, if you will, biblical gems. In chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we are given our call. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it says, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Our calling is in Christ Jesus. And so we have our call uh, defined or expressed in chapter 1 of this great book. In chapter 2, we note our conversion. Verses 4 through 6 says, But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we see our call in chapter 1. We note our conversion in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, we are instructed and encouraged in our confidence. In chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, we note the fact that we can be confident in our purpose and confident in protection and confident in the plan of God and the power of God and the provision of God. He says in chapter 3, 11, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. We have access to God. We have the confidence that he is on our side, that his hand is on our shoulder, that we can fulfill the purpose and the calling that he has indeed called us to. So we see our calling in chapter 1. We see our conversion in chapter 2. We note our confidence in chapter 3. And the first three chapters are lifting us up. Lifting us up into the heavenlies. We notice in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In chapter 2, he says, And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
So we see in the first chapters that we are lifted up into the heavenlies, that we rise above this present earth in which we live even. We're noting our call and our conversion, our confidence. Now for the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 6, we're going to be firmly planted. Our feet are going to be firmly planted on planet earth. There's a statement that says heavenly promises make no earthly difference unless practiced by God's people. And we've heard statements before. You may have heard somebody say things like, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly value. Well, in the book of Ephesians, we are are elevated or lifted up into the heavenlies. But now in chapter four through six, our feet are going to be firmly planted on earth. A very practical way in which we're going to be told and taught how to serve and conduct ourselves and behave ourselves in the house of God and in the world in which we live. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.1, we noted it already, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That word therefore that's used right off the bat is a transitional word. And it connects the three preceding chapters to that, this present chapter. So he says, all right, here we go. Now that you've been called, now that you've been converted, now that you've been given confidence, you are to do some things. He goes on to say that he beseeches us. Well, again, that's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, this word is now being used. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Paul is lovingly pleading with these believers here at Ephesus. And he goes on to talk about something called a vocation. We talk about a vocation in our world as a job or possibly a, a some type of, 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 of life work. Well, guess what? As believers, we have the same thing, don't we? A career, if you will. We're career soldiers for Jesus Christ. We have a vocation and a calling as well. And in this particular case, that vocation is to walk worthy of that calling, that conversion, that confidence. That those things that were brought about by the grace of God, now we are to walk worthy in them. We see passages like Philippians 1.27 that kind of touches on the same thing and very similar to where we're at right now in the book of Ephesians when it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The Christian life is a very practical life. The problem is sometimes that it gets lost in all of this in in spirit, so to speak. We make it so spiritual that it's not practical. Let me tell you something. Any faith that you have in your life has to be practical. If it's not practical, it serves no purpose. And unfortunately, we may run around the world knowing the Bible and being able to quote verses. We may even have, uh, uh, have done tremendous studies or taken Bible college courses, but if we don't apply the principles that God places in His Word, and if we don't put them on the ground where we live and and we don't actually apply them to our lives, then we're wasting our time and we're certainly not fulfilling the purpose, the plan, and the call of God for our life. J. Vernon McGee, he said, It's not so much how you walk as it is where you walk. We need to be walking in the light of the Word of God. We need to be obeying His principles, His statutes, His commands. 
Paul goes on now in this particular chapter to tell us a little more specifically how to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. Again, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness and long, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He says, now I want to give you some very specific ways in which to fulfill your calling, in which to um, um, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called. Well, I want to hear this thing now, Paul. Really, tell me, because I want to be successful in my Christian life. I really want to grasp these concepts. I want to apply them to my life. I want it to change my existence. I want it to truly make a difference and enable me to impact the lives of others as well. I hope that's our heart tonight. So let's go ahead and take just a few moments tonight and look at some of these characteristics and qualities that enable us as the Apostle says, to walk worthy of our vocation. Everybody that names the name of Christ has already been called. Everybody that names the name of Christ has already been converted. Everybody that names the name of Christ has already have a confidence if indeed they by faith live. Now let's go ahead and say, how does that happen? Now how do we practically apply these truths so that we live up to that calling and live up to that confidence and, and we, we, we live up to that conversion that we now possess. How do we do that? Well, he gives us a few things and we're going to look at those tonight. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask for your leadership. Speak to our hearts now, Lord. This is going to be very practical. Help us, Lord, just to take to heart these things. Lord, they're simple in being said, but Lord, in applying them in our lives sometimes, they can be, seem somewhat difficult. Help us, Lord, just to be obedient now. We do love you, Lord, and we want you to be exalted and magnified in this service. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, and Father, may you fill every person here. May our ears hear those things you'd have for us. Lord, may you just be glorified. You are worthy of our praise. May we be better for having come tonight. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, again, he comes off with this list. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. How do you want me to walk? How do I walk worthy? Well, then you, you have to walk with all lowliness. That's what he says, with all lowliness. Lowliness. That means a mind that is brought low. That's not real complicated. It's pretty simple. It's basically just the opposite of pride. A mind that's brought low. Years ago, I heard a story of a very... I guess, uptown church in Edinburgh. They wanted a pulpit, uh, someone to fill the pulpit, and so they sent out to a seminary, and they asked for someone to fill the pulpit. Well, nonetheless, a very fine young man, one who was very brilliant in the classroom at his school, came out to fill the pulpit. He had never had any experience. He, unfortunately, was filled with pride and thought that he was obviously something else simply because he was chosen to fill the pulpit at this great church. When he got up before the group of people, he was immediately struck with stage fright. He thought he would stand up and wax eloquent. He thought he would preach the word of God with great zeal and great emotion and great passion and that he would capture their minds, their hearts, their spirits. But instead he froze. He froze in front of the crowd. He forgot everything he had ever learned. And worse, he forgot his message. 
He had memorized his sermon, but he could not for the life of him even come up with the first line. So he did the best he could. He began to stumble through it. He, 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 he finally left the pulpit humiliated. He knew he had miserably failed. A dear little Scottish lady went up to him and said, Young man, I came down. He said, Young man, I watched you this morning, and I'd like to say to you that if you had gone up into that pulpit like you came down out of that pulpit, then you would have come down out of that pulpit like you went up into that pulpit. You get what I mean? You know, he went up there all proud and he left miserable. He said, if you'd have went up there humble, you'd have left there happy. And you know what? The truth is today is that the Lord is calling us, saying, you, you, you really want to be successful? You really want to fulfill or walk worthy of the calling? You really want to work, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called, then you need to, you, you need to, 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 to walk with all lowliness. The great preacher F.B. Meyer said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the easier we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. And that it is not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. And that we have to go down, always down, to get his best gifts. Again, lowliness is the flagship of all Christian virtue. It's the most needed essential in a sense. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And don't let things be done for glory. I mean, just to somehow be recognized or to be placed out front. That's not why you're supposed to do things. But in lowliness of mind, let each of us esteem other better than themselves. Wow. Now listen, we can read that and we all go, Amen! That's a blessing. We agree, preacher. That's what the book says. But I'm often reminded and made aware that that's not always the case in my life and it's not always the case in yours. Let's just face it. If only we could master this verse. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know your feelings would never be hurt if that was the case? I was offended. You know why? Because you esteemed yourself better. I mean, let's just get down to it. Well, no, it wasn't. I was offended because, no, you were offended because you thought you deserved better. And when I'm offended, that's my problem too. I don't care if it's just down at the McDonald's at the counter and, and somebody doesn't treat me with respect. And I say, I can't believe it. They're supposed to be serving me. I'm paying their wages, they know. They should understand that if it wasn't for me buying these burgers, they wouldn't have a job. What am I really saying? I'm saying that I deserve better than what I was given. I'm not very lowly. I'm not esteeming them better than me. When my dad used to get on me when I was a young kid, I dared, I said nothing back. 
Because I realize he's dad and I'm the son. He doesn't owe me, I owe him. But you know, we live our lives differently. You know, a child back talks, you know why? Because they think they deserve better. You don't have no right talking to me like that. Are you kidding me? Lowliness. We're breeding an attitude of pridefulness and arrogance in our young people even today. But the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, if you're going to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called, if you're going to be the kind of Christian I want you to be, he says, then you have to walk in lowliness. That is not debatable, and that's not, well, in this circumstance, lowly, in this time, prideful. In this uh, uh, situation or circumstance, I can exalt myself, and in this one, I have to humble. No, it is always an attitude, a mental mindset. It's always a spiritual mindset of lowliness. Jesus himself extols and exhibits the virtue of lowliness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says... Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest in your souls. The story is told of a group of people who went to see Beethoven's home in Germany. And after the tour guide had showed them Beethoven's piano, and after he'd finished his lecture, he, he asked if any of them would like to come up and sit at the piano for just a moment and maybe play a chord or two. Of course, there was a sudden rush to the piano and everybody wanted to touch the keys that Beethoven had played on. Everybody but this gray-haired gentleman with long flowing hair. The guy finally asked him, he said, Sir, wouldn't you like to sit down at the piano and play a few notes? He said, No, no. I don't really feel worthy to. That man was Pederewski, the only man truly worthy of playing Beethoven's piano at the time. But he was a humble man, a tremendous, a phenomenal pianist himself. But he would not dare touch those keys because he was lowly of mind. It was John Raskin, excuse me, Riskin, who said this. He said, I believe the first test of truly great men, oh, excuse me, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking his opinion, but really great men have a feeling that the greatness is not in them but through them. That they could do, that they could not do or be anything else than God made them. Well, I like that. Andrew Murray, he said it this way, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten, because he has received the Spirit of Jesus, who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. M.R. DeHaan used to say this. He'd say, humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. You awake out there? You know... This is boring to many people because it doesn't interest you. Humility is not something that is glamorous. 
It's not something that makes us look good. It's not something that elevates us or extols us or exalts us. Humility is something that puts us low. And honestly, the truth is, Americans do not like to be low. We like to be elevated. We want to be in first place. We don't want to ever be in last place. And I'm not saying that we should strive to be losers. That has nothing to do with this concept. But we are to be lowly of mind. We are to be filled with humility. We shouldn't always be the one that wants all the attention. I think we're in danger today, and I see it, I see it across the board in all of our children, including my own at times. This new evolution of people wanting to be out front all the time. It's part of our culture. It's being bred in our people, in our youngsters. And, and the problem with it is, there's nothing wrong with taking pictures, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to have fun with friends, but I do struggle sometimes with this picture stuff. Everybody wanting to be on the front page. It is a bother. You say, well, your kids do it. I know, I'm telling you, I have a problem with all of it. Doesn't it bother you? I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong, it seems like. I mean, taking a picture of your friends acting corny and stupid, we always have done it. But we didn't have access to the cameras, and we didn't have access to the Internet, and we didn't have access to the world. And now it just seems that we've taken it another level, where once we would go into those little machines and take those pictures and put all our heads and go, ah, and we go, click. And five of us would fill that little screen up, you know. And we'd each get one little picture, we'd cut it, and we'd put it in our pocket. Now it goes on Facebook, and it goes around the world. And if we're not careful, it becomes something that says, I'm going to outdo the next, and I'm going to have a crazier picture, and I'm going to have a better picture, and I'm going to, I'm going to... Why? It's not that anyone... I don't think our young people even have a clue that it's, it's pride. I don't think they even realize it. But I'm telling you, there's an element of pride in all of this. And all we're doing, it seems, in America is we're breeding pride in our people. Not pride for our nation, not pride for our faith, not pride in our families, not pride in our name, but pride in ourselves. And there's something wrong, inherently wrong with that. Not as believers. As as believers, there's something wrong. We ought to be lowly. People, the guys kind of laugh at me in a sense, and they're kind of crack up at me because when they say, all right, we need the senior pastor to stand up and introduce the crowd, I'm like, oh, I can't stand that. I hate getting in front of those people like that. Now, they'd say, Pastor O'Donnell, we need you to come up and preach. At first, I'd be like, what? And then I'd be like, you're going to get it. Because that's what God's called me to do. I can do that. I can stand behind this pulpit. I'm as comfortable behind this pulpit as you ladies are in the kitchen I hope it's you ladies. In the kitchen. Or maybe you men. Behind your sink. Washing dishes. Now listen, I'm that comfortable because this is where God put me. But that doesn't mean that when I walk up here I think somehow I can do this in myself. And you shouldn't be going to your Sunday school class thinking I can do this in myself. Hey, what a sin it is for us to come together on Sunday, Saturday night with the Lord and say, Now God, you've got to give me something for tomorrow. Give me something for tomorrow! You mean to tell me you haven't been studying that lesson? You haven't already been reading the verses? You haven't been meditating upon God and His Word and allowing His Spirit to really grasp, grab your heart and to really sink His teeth deep into your soul? Are you kidding me? Why in the world are we so prideful and arrogant to think that we don't need God? 
Throwing a message together, throwing a sermon together, throwing some, some uh, bus program together like it's just, well, whatever, anybody can do. That's ridiculous. That's called pride. That's called arrogance. And God calls you and I to lowliness. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness. I go to church every time the doors are open. I go out soul winning. I pray and read my Bible every day. Do you know that you may still not be lowly? And I'll be honest with you. If you're not lowly, if you aren't striving to be more lowly, those things will only puff you up and ultimately cause you to head off the deep end. Because you'll get offended sooner or later. Lowliness. So important. But he goes on to say meekness. Meekness. Again, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness. Well, lowliness and meekness kind of go together, don't they? We're going to find that all of these go together, really. And the problem is that sometimes we pick and choose things in the Bible that we prefer. Well, I'm okay with that, but I'm not real good with this. And, well, that's just my weakness. That's my area of weakness. And everybody has those. So I'm not going to really get down on myself. I'm not really going to somehow emphasize that area. I'm going to go ahead and leave that one alone because that's just who and what I really am. And God made me with those tendencies. That's not an excuse to continue to rebel and disobey God, though. He says, with all lowliness and meekness. According to Bill Farmer's newspaper column, J. Upton Dixon was a fun-loving fellow who said he was writing a book entitled Cower Power. Cower Power. C-O-W-E-R. Cower Power. You know, you cower in fear. Cower Power. He also founded a group of submissive people. It was called Doormats. That stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls. If there are no objections, of course. Their motto was, the meek shall inherit the earth. If that's okay with everybody. Their symbol was the yellow traffic light. Now listen, Mr. Dixon may have been having some fun. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what's disturbing about all of this in my mind is that many people assume that the, the ridiculous ideas behind doormats and cower power represent the quality of meekness spoken of in the Bible. See, many, even in church, think that to be meek is to be weak. But the opposite is true. What the Bible's talking about is a very powerful virtue, this meekness. A slogan that comes close to defining meekness could be strong enough to be gentle. Isn't it amazing how growing up as young men, we were taught to be aggressive. You know, we looked around and we, you know, uh, nobody's going to 
Nobody's going to get in my face. I'm going to get right back in their face. You hit me, I'll hit you. And, and you know, and I'm not opposed to that. I love hitting people. Especially if they hit me. But you know where I'm going with this. There's an element there as believers now. We're not talking about how it was in the world. Before we were saved, I mean, you stood up for yourself. You're not going to take anything. You're going to make sure. But that's not meekness. That's a different spirit. That's a worldly philosophy. That's not a Christ-like spirit. I don't have a problem. Someone breaks in your home, you do what you got to do. You have every right to protect yourself and your family. Every right. Somebody says, well, you ought to turn the cheek. You turn it, I'll take care of the problem. I'm not out visiting and I'm not out representing Christ. I'm in my home sleeping. The lights are out. It's dark out. It's nighttime. Somebody breaks in my home. They got nothing good planned for me and my family. I'm not going to give them the opportunity. Now, you don't have to agree with that. You do things your way. But God does give me the right to protect what he has entrusted into my watch care. I'm going to be honest with you. Somebody comes walking in my house and wants to steal stuff out of my house. If I catch them, I'm going to try to hurt them. And I'm either going to throw them in jail or they might get shot. Listen, now you say, well, what if they aren't there to hurt you? Too bad. You shouldn't be in my house without permission. Now, again, I'm just telling you, you can go ahead and handle it however you want. But God does tell me that I'm allowed to protect my property. I'm allowed to protect those things that God has given to me. Called my family. I'm a steward of those things. Now, listen, I, I'm sure if somebody came running along and grabbed a three, you know, a, a hot wheel out of the front of, in my driveway and took off down the road, I'm not going to get my 30-06. <laughs> you know, obviously. You know what I'm talking about. And when I used to have a dog, if they'd have come along and stole my dog, I'd have gladly given it to them. But we are, as believers, supposed to have this, this attitude and this characteristic, this quality of meekness. True meekness is best seen in Jesus Christ. I mean, he was submissive, never resisting or disputing the will of God. He, he, he uh, absolute, had absolute trust in the Father. And that absolute trust enabled him to show compassion, courage, self-sacrifice, even amidst the most hostile circumstances. Again, meekness is not about weakness. It's not about being, as, as was mentioned here by the writer, a doormat. That's not anything about me. That has nothing to do with meekness. How do we apply this to ourselves? Jesus Christ, obviously, being meek, submissive, never resisting or disputing the will of God. I mean, how do we apply that? When we're meek, when you and I are meek, we're going to bear insults without lashing out. When we lash out, it's usually prideful, it's resentment, it's retaliation. That's not easy, don't misunderstand me. That goes against the flesh, folks. If we will apply this aspect of meekness, then we're going to thank God in every circumstance while using every circumstance, good or bad, mind you, as an occasion to submit to Him. Meekness would be weakness if we yielded to sin. If it caused us to yield to sin, that would be weakness. But no, because it stems from goodness and godliness, it is a tremendous strength in the believer's life. We are to be meek. A very gentle strength. And it's important that we are strong. I think a man ought to be a man. But I think a man ought to have compassion. He ought to have a tenderness. He ought to have a gentleness. The Bible 
exhorts us to be gentle. And sometimes we've gotten the idea, as I said growing up in our youth, that we are to be always... And some of us have a harder time not doing that. Hulk-like, you know what I mean. But the reality is, is that we ought to show some genuine compassion, care, and concern. Love and gentleness. Your children need gentleness. They don't always need hardness. You don't always have to be threatening to spank them or to hurt them or harm them or to discipline or to lock them in their room till they're 30. They need someone that will gently communicate, love them, and show some compassion. Sometimes you just need to listen. But I'm a man. Men act. I'm not going to sit on this. You might ruin everything. Meekness. The prolific pastor, preacher, and writer, A.W. Tozer, once said this. The meek man, oh, by the way, A.W. Tozer, interestingly enough, was converted as a teenager in Akron, Ohio. Do you know that his grave is in the Ellet graveyard? Isn't that something? I'm going to go look for it. I am. I'm going to look for it. Who was it? Wasn't it uh, Brother um, Hamblin that said he likes to look at famous people's graves? A.W. Tozer's famous, folks. He's written a number of books, Christian books. But nonetheless, Tozer said... The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything is his motto. Oh, I like that. Meekness. There are two men in the Bible who are noted as being meek. Moses in the old, Jesus in the new. And just imagine with me, if you would, for a moment, Moses coming down out of the mount, casting those commandments down upon the ground. I mean, there he sees the people of God acting fools, living like the devil, rejecting God and going off and living immoral. And he takes those tablets and he throws them down. There was no weakness that day. And you think about Jesus as he walks into the temple and the money changers are there. He said, this is my house and it's to be a house of prayer. He puts together a whip, and there he chases them out, turning over the tables. Oh, there's no weakness in that meekness. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness. And he goes on to say, with long-suffering. Long-suffering. Again, I think that we, or hope that we all want to 
successfully fulfill the calling of God, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. And in order to do that, we have to walk in lowliness, in meekness, and we must be long-suffering. Long-suffering, of course, is a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, the Bible says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Notice long-suffering. Long-suffering. That means long-tempered. Having a long temper. Not long time being mad and angry, but taking a long time to get angry. Again, we're admonished to exhibit this most valuable quality, and it is a very Christ-like characteristic. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit, long-suffering. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than a mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. What he's saying is, is, that, is that outward strength is not as valuable as inward strength. Being able to control your feelings, your emotions, inwardly, takes more strength or power than to conquer a city. That's why people struggle. I'm always amazed. Guys will come, preacher, I just, I don't let you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time with temp, my temper. Really? Yeah, you're the only man that I've ever met like that. I've never had a problem with my temper, Ever. You know what I mean? We, we, sometimes we act like we're the only ones that ever had any problems in our life. Or there are things that cause us troubles. Are you kidding me? If you're a man in this room and you don't struggle with your temper from time to time, you better go to the doctors and check some things out. <laughs> Ladies, if you've got a guy that lives with you and he don't get mad every once in a while, there's probably something wrong. I don't know if you married a man. Now, there are some men that are much more meek in a sense, in the sense that they're, they're quieter, they're not as out. But, but things are going to bother them. Now, you may not know it sometimes. They may go in the garage and just start throwing things around, going crazy. They're, they're, they're angry. They just won't let you know. They're afraid that you might do something about it. But I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. We struggle as men with that issue. Ladies, and, and you act like you don't, but you do. You just deal with it differently. This, this is something that every believer struggles with. When God, when God put this in the Bible, this long-suffering, he, he didn't just put that for men believers. That's for all believers. He says, you've got to be careful. See, we men get mad about things, and, and a lot of times we have a tendency to be a little more open about it, a little more boisterous about it. But ladies, you get mad internally sometimes. I mean, you're steaming. You can see it coming out the ears, but you still got a smile on your face. I'm telling you that either way, it's wrong. Either way, we've got to learn to be long-suffering, to be slow to wrath. In the book of Proverbs 25, 28, it says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You have no protection. Everywhere we go, everything that happens in our life, we're going to bring bad circumstances on ourselves. Man, you get mad. You run around with somebody that's got a temper. You're, going to, you're asking for trouble. Sooner or later, you're going to be in a fight. Sooner or later, you're going to be in jail. Sooner or later, you're going to be in a mess. Matter of fact, the Bible admonishes us and it, it commands us to stay away from people with, with tempers that aren't controlled. You can't have a short fuse. You can't afford to. I'm glad that God's long-suffering toward us. 
In 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Notice right away, the Apostle Paul says, I'm the biggest sinner on earth. I am the biggest sinner on earth. Watch verse 16. Howbeit for this cause, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might shew forth all long suffering. He says, I, I, I'm the worst sinner of all. And yet God showed me mercy so that I could be an example of his long suffering. He should have snuffed me out. He should have done away with me. He should have never permitted me even to be a child of God, let alone a preacher of the gospel. And yet he was long-suffering. When he could have been very angry with me, he was long-suffering. And that was given for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. He said, therefore, because the Lord Jesus Christ was long-suffering to me, because he, he, he did not lose his temper and ultimately cast me into the place called the lake of fire. Because he didn't just throw in the towel and say, you're not worth wasting my time. Because he was long-suffering, I'm to be long-suffering to others. And so are you and I. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. He goes on to say, forbearing one another in love. Now again, notice, we want to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called. He says, in order to do that properly, you've already saw earlier in the first three chapters how, how you are positionally speaking. But now, practically speaking, now in chapter 4, we're beginning to tell you how you're to behave yourself, how you're to conduct yourself as believers. And I want my church, ultimately, to be in unity. And I want everybody to get along. And so, therefore, you have to operate and function in all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, he says. That means to hold back oneself in the spirit of love. We need to love one another enough. This is as practical as it gets. To put up with one another. We need to love each other enough to put up with each other. There will be times when folks will annoy you and even disappoint you. But just hold on. Put up with them. Be patient with people. Give them space and give them time. In Colossians 3.13 it says, Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. You know, I'm certainly glad that the Lord again forbears in my case. I'm glad He puts up with me at times. I'm glad that He... he, he, he he recognizes that I'm not perfect and he recognizes that I do fail and that he is patient with me. And he often gives me time to glean and to grow in grace. You know, we're all so spiritual, aren't we? We really, we, sometimes if we're not careful, we think we're so spiritual. Then how come we can't get along with people? I mean, if we're really that spiritual, how come we can't get along with our family? You say, oh, that's because they're lost and they're unsaved. They don't understand my position and they don't agree with them how I live. And Yeah, but how come you can't get along with them? Well, they won't let me. That's fine. But how come you're so bitter? How come you're so upset with them? Don't you understand where they're coming from? 
How are they supposed to understand you? I mean, I mean, in a vernacular or, or in some kind of illustration, we could say that in the world we were in the muck and the mire, and we loved to play around in the in the in the, the the muck and the mire of the world, just like pigs like to roll around in slop. And as believers, we step out of that slop. God places us on a solid on solid ground, and He puts a new song in our mouth, even praising our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. All of a sudden, they look at us and say, "So you think you're better than the rest of us because you're not down the slop with us, huh?" And you go, I can't understand that. I want nothing to do with them. All they do is put me down. You can't forbear. But worse than that, we have fellow believers today. We're all in this together. Here we are tonight. A great group gathered tonight, by the way. And here we are. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can't even put up with each other. Isn't that amazing? But we're all spiritual here. I mean, we go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We drive buses and we, we work buses and we teach Sunday school classes. We sing in the choir. We do specials. We play instruments. We clean the nursery. We clean the buildings. We take care of ushering. We do all these things, of course. Certainly I'm spiritual, but yet you can't get along with each other. How sad is that? Why were you left on earth? Why didn't God take you to heaven the moment you were saved? Well, to win the world. Yeah, but you don't win the world until you learn to get along with each other. And there is so much division in churches today. I'm glad that at least from my mindset, from my vantage point, from how I see it here, I don't hear about a lot of dissent and a lot of, a lot of separation and a lot of problems in the church. I, I'll be quite frank with you. I hate cliques. I've always hated cliques. I couldn't stand it. I never wanted to be a jock, even though I was the best athlete in school. Okay, well, I wasn't the best athlete, but I still hated that jock thing. But then on the other hand, there were those over in the other corner that were burnouts that said, nobody wants to be around us, and they took pride in being separated from the rest. What I found is that people couldn't come together. Why? Because of our pride. Because, because in the long run, we weren't willing, as the Bible says, to, to be lowly or meek or long-suffering or to favor one another. That's the problem. We just wouldn't put up with one another. I don't like you because you don't like me. And you don't like me because I don't like you. And everybody's upset. You don't dress the way I dress. You don't talk the way I talk. You don't do the things I do. Therefore, I can't deal with you. And that, unfortunately, is part of Christianity sometimes. Well, they don't have the same standards we have. Yeah, okay, so don't go out to eat and dinner and get along. But there's a place to get along. But in this place, obviously, I separate myself from certain. We don't send our young people to churches where they go swimming, mixed swimming, where the girls and boys get together in bathing suits and go diving in together and throwing each other over their shoulders and flipping and doing somersaults and bathing suits. We don't do that. That's just our way. We don't believe that we, we believe they ought to be separated in some things. I understand that. But let me tell you something. When a new Christian walks in the door of this church and they are not as separated as maybe God would have them to be or as you think they ought to be, let me tell you something. Why don't you just be patient with them? None of us were where we are today when we first got saved. How's come we can't put up with other people? And that's something we got to learn. It's funny how mom will put up with their kids. So will dad. But let one of these other brats run through the hallway of the church. I can't believe. I don't understand why those people let their kid run through the hallway. I just saw your kid, by the way, but that's okay, right? You can forbear them, but you can't do that for the next guy's kid. 
You understand where I'm going? There's something wrong with that. We're supposed to be believers. We have a vocation and a calling. We're to fulfill that calling. We can't do that unless we are, as the Bible says, walking in lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another. Ultimately, what's the goal? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God says, ultimately, the reason why I want you to to walk in lowliness and meekness, the reason why I want you to be long-suffering and forbearing one another in love is because, ultimately, I want you to keep the unity that I introduced you to and placed you in. Do you realize the moment you were saved, you were baptized into one body, we became one? There's a unity there, and God says, I want that unity to reign in your life and in your ministry long after you've been saved. I don't want there to be schisms and separation in the church. I want you to get along, and I want you to be going in the same direction. You're not going to agree on every little facet of the ministry, and you won't necessarily believe each other to be right in every situation. But let me tell you something. We need to learn to forbear one another. We need to learn to be long-suffering. We need to learn to be lowly and meek if we're ever going to fulfill God's calling in our life. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The first three chapters of Ephesians, we are lifted up into the heavenlies. It's an exciting time. To think that we're seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. That we're as good as there. Then the rest of the book... He grounds us. The rest of the book of Ephesians, he says, I want to plant your feet firmly on this planet. I want you to understand how to conduct yourself as a believer, my child, and how the church ought to conduct itself. And when it's all said and done, if we work backwards tonight, it begins with unity. And God is simply saying, if you're going to have unity in your church... If there's going to be peace amongst your membership, if you're going to get along the way you should get along in order to glorify and exalt me, and by the way, let me tell you, when we don't get along with one another, that puts a black eye on Jesus Christ. Because don't think for a minute the world and your family doesn't see it. Boy, it's so important. And in the end, he says, let's work back from that position of unity, singleness of mind, and peace. And in order to have it, to preserve it, you're going to have to learn to forbear one another in love. To exhibit long-suffering. To walk in meekness and lowliness. Tonight, Community Baptist Temple will rise or fall on your humility. You say, well, if the preacher gets a big head, yeah, I know. But let's just look at ourselves tonight. Most churches don't fail because the preacher fails. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Most churches sever and split because people in the church get a big head and want preeminence. Now, there are churches that have problems because their pastor doesn't exhibit wisdom. I'll admit that. But when I hear of church splits across the country, I usually hear of people who were not satisfied with leadership took it upon themselves to extend their own authority. That's called pride. 
Now again, because someone doesn't agree with the pastor doesn't mean they're wrong. Everyone's allowed an opinion. But you be careful that you don't sow seeds of discord. God hates that and he calls it an abomination. You might as well be a homosexual. Because your deeds are just as evil as that deed. It's an abomination equally. Listen, do not sow cords of discord in a church. Because just like being a murderer. Do not do that. Someone says, "Uh uh-oh, somebody's been sowing seeds of discord. No, not that I'm aware of. But let me tell you something. I certainly want to avoid it before it hits. I don't want to see that happen to Community Baptist Temple. We've got too much at stake. We've, we've, got, we've got thousands and thousands of people that are going to come to Christ up at that place, not counting what's going on right here, right now. Listen, you don't have to agree with what's going on, but I do believe that everybody tonight agrees. But I'm saying you wouldn't have to agree. I promise you, God has something big for Community Baptist Temple, but it's not going to be in spite of us. It will be because of God using us. I want to encourage you to realize that he wants us to be unified, not just there, but unified here, right now. He wants God's people to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. A oneness. Let's get along with one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's love one another. Let's put up with one another. Let's just say, you know, I'm glad Jesus Christ except people that are less than perfect, because otherwise I'd never got in. So you know what? I'll do the same as he does and just love people, even though sometimes I don't understand them. Let's get along. Let's make it work. Because in the end, in the end, he wants us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called. So let's do what's necessary to make that happen tonight. Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you again for the simplicity of your word, Lord, for your gospel. Lord, we ask for your leadership tonight. Lord, without you, we are nothing. Father, help us to be lowly and meek. Help us, Father, to be long-suffering and forbearing. May we endeavor to ensure that there's unity among us. May I not be the reason there's not unity. If, if, if I, I'm aware of something I've done or something someone else is doing that's causing division, help us, Father. Help me to address it in a very kind, loving way. And Lord, vice versa, may each of us, Father, be careful. Maybe a teacher, a Sunday school teacher said something we didn't appreciate or maybe a nursery worker responded in a way that we didn't like. Lord, help us not to be so quick to judge, but to instead be forbearing, long-suffering. Lord, if there's something unscriptural taking place, then may it be addressed by leadership, given a heads up so that they can address it and deal with it. But Lord, if it's just a matter of personality, help us in this church to be lowly, to be meek. Lord, we just need you tonight. For we want unity to reign in our ministry, in our church, and in the lives of our families and our people. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed as the pianist begins to play. If God would have you come, you come. The altars are open. It's a constant battle to remain in a position 
of unity. I think about my wife and me. We both have to work constantly and continually to ensure there's unity. My family, like yours, includes people with personalities and the flesh. And we have to work at trying to maintain that unity, that peace in our home. It's not something we do one time and then all of a sudden it's fine. It's good for the next year. No, it's something we have to work on, strive all the time, forever being lowly, forever stepping out in meekness, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, constantly, continually. Because see, there's a bigger goal than just me being elevated or being right. It's all of us getting along and ultimately reflecting positively on Jesus Christ. message like this tonight is preventative. In the military, we had to do preventative maintenance on our vehicles all the time. Why? So that they wouldn't break down in the midst of the battle, the heat of the battle. Well, tonight in this service, we're sharing something from God's Word that is preventative. So that in the heat of the battle, when the pressure comes, when the bullets start flying... We have already made sure that everything's not going to fall apart. That we have put the shields in place, the armament in place. That we're equipped now to deal with the barrage that Satan's throwing our way. Tonight, I would like to ask you, I know we're running a little late tonight, but we have something we want you to see very quickly. What's it called, brother? A what? A 3D fly-through, real quick, of our nurseries, of how they're kind of going to look. If you have just about one minute, please be seated. Go ahead, let's show it. 